All right. Go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 25 and going through to the end of the chapter. And um, you guys have noticed, you've been here for the past few weeks, haven't stayed home yet. Um, even notice, noticing that we've been going through this section of scripture, there's some strange stuff. There's some passages that are peculiar, and the Bible is just full of peculiar information, and I'm so happy that I get to go through each and every part of it and share it with you. And I'm so happy and blessed that I have a church, that I go to a church that is willing to sit under uh, the teaching of every word of scripture. It's a really cool thing. Um, and as you guys know, I'm going to be taking a few months off later this year. My family and I are going on a sabbatical, and it will be some of you who are taking uh, passages of scripture and preaching Christ in them. And we have people who are willing and have taken interest in uh, doing this while I'm gone. We have some teachers lined up. I wanted to, uh, so I'm going to offer to them and to you, this is open for everyone, um, I'm going to be teaching about teaching. I'm going to be teaching a teaching class uh, here two Saturdays in June, um, June uh, 11th and 18th. We're going to say 9 to noon. That's subject to change. Um, if you're one of the guys who is teaching, uh, we'll be talking to you personally about it. Um, it's more, more than an invitation. It's like an invitation with pressure. Uh, you you got you to gotta come. Um, but but uh, all of you, it's available to anyone. If you are absolutely confident that you never want to teach the Bible, James 3.1 is like your life verse, right? Let not many become teachers. Like, that's, that's me. Uh, but for some reason, you're still interested. Come anyway. Most of teaching is study. Most of teaching is study. And while you might not teach in this format, we are all called to study well, um, to study to show yourself approved. So you'll learn how to teach June 11th and uh, 18th, 9 to noon, especially if you're one of the guys covering the pulpit while I'm gone. Um, I'll be telling you guys more about that uh, in the coming weeks. So in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, um, this is a passage you won't have to teach while I'm gone because I'm doing it now. And it is not a passage that you would have picked to teach while I was gone. Now concerning virgins, oh, this is going to be fun. I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. 
But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. We need prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice that you have given us your word. We thank you that you are intimately interested in the intricacies of our lives and relationships. Um, we know that there is nothing past your understanding, and we believe there is nothing past your wisdom. Um, we trust your judgment, Lord, and we want to hear it. We say, give us your wisdom. Give us your vision to see things as you do. God, bless our study this morning. Let your church be edified by the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this entire chapter is dealing with things that the Corinthians wrote to Paul about. It's their fault. They brought it up in the first place. They asked questions. He's giving the answers. That places us at a real disadvantage because we weren't the ones who asked the questions, and we don't know exactly what the questions were that Paul is answering here. But we can discern with some level of confidence that there were three general areas that the Corinthians had in mind. They had questions about sex and whether it was bad. It seems that they assumed that since it was not good for an unmarried person to engage in sexual activity, that's a sin, it's called fornication, well, then it must follow that it's also bad for married people to have sex, right? Paul says, no, you, you weren't following me there. He answers this line of inquiry in verses 1 through 9, and I taught on that two weeks ago. I'm sure you want to give that a re-listen. Another subject they had questions about was marriage and divorce. Paul, if it's better to, to be single, this was the assumption they had in Corinth, and this was the assumption that Paul needed to correct. And then the question is, that if I'm married now, should I stop being married since it's so holy to be single? And what if he's an unbeliever? Can I leave? What if he leaves first? These are all questions Paul deals with in verses 10, uh, really through the end of the chapter. He tags on that at the end of the chapter again. Right at the, uh, he reiterates that marriage is until death do us part. Now we come to the third section of Paul's answers, and here in verse 25 through 38, it seems like Paul is answering the question, if I, as a father, have a daughter who is of marrying age, and you say it's better to stay single, well, should I allow her to be married? The original question seems to be something like that, and this is answered directly in verses 36 through 38. But in the verses leading up to this, Paul broadens the scope of the question in order to address singleness of all kinds for both men and women. Now, I'm going to be teaching this out of order. Um, I'm going to jump from verse 25 to 36 through 38 and deal with the tricky part first, um, what I think is the tricky part. It's tricky because Paul is dealing with questions that we didn't ask and we don't know. It's tricky because Paul is addressing a culture that is vastly different from ours, 
And it's tricky because the words are just kind of hard to understand. <laughs> so we'll start with this. The specifics of the Corinthians' question about their unmarried daughters in verse 36 and following. We'll start with that. And then we'll go back to verse 25 and address the more broad topic of being a single Christian on purpose. And then from there, we'll broaden the scope even more and be reminded by Paul of what we're here on this earth for in the first place. The bigger point, the biggest point, is how we are to live, what priorities we should have as married people, single people, or whoever. And so he, he starts this conversation in verse 25 and says, oh yeah, about virgins. So they had a question about virgins. What is that? In a lot of our discussion, we have to temporarily suspend our 21st century perspective as best we can, and we have to accept that in that day and in more times and places through most of the world's history, the parents of the bride, and often the parents of the groom as well, were the ones making decisions about marriage. So this fits in the larger context in chapter 7, which is all about marriage. You might not like it, but this is simply the way it was done. This is not to say that the unmarried had absolutely no say in the matter, but the final word belonged to the father, and it is these fathers who were asking questions of Paul, and it's to these fathers that Paul addresses, the, the, who, who he addresses in this chapter. Paul's opinion, which he shares, is that single people should not be in a hurry to get married, and we'll get back to that. So this would at first seem to advise the fathers, don't let your daughters get married. In order to correct any sort of extreme position, he covers this fully in verse 36 and says, if you think you're being overly harsh here, just let them get married. If a virgin marries, she doesn't sin. And he has to say that a few different ways, a few different times. This is where this verse is usually misunderstood and maybe the reason why it's avoided entirely because it sounds weird and creepy. Uh, verse 36, it says, But if any man thinks he's behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Okay, an incorrect reading, which don't feel bad if this is what came up in your head. It goes something like this. It's better to be single, but if you're already fooling around with the girl, that's fine. Go ahead and tie the knot. That is a way to read this verse. It's not the correct way. But it is an understand. No, that is not what is being said here. That's not what he's talking about. The man in question, if any man thinks that he is behaving, okay, that man is the girl's father. The improper behavior, it's not anything weird or sexual like that. It's improper behavior towards his daughter would be an overbearing legalism that denies her the right and privilege of a good and godly marriage, which these parents were tempted to withhold because they're saying, I, I think it's better. We're Christians, and in this culture, like marriage, relationships, all bad. Just draw the line. Let's, let's just have all, all our daughters be single forever. Um, so there, Paul says, if you're behaving improperly, and she is old enough, like she's not a little kid anymore. He says she's past the flower of youth. Maybe he's actually saying, you know, her chances aren't getting any better, man. Just let her get married. I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's cultural subtext there that we're not picking up on, right? But he says, yes, you, you don't have to give her in marriage, you know, which would have been a, a common, almost like an, just a business transaction, unfortunately. You, know? you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You know, virginity is honored. Singleness is honored in the church. So if you want to just take a, a hard break from the culture which says that your children are ultimately assets to you, yeah, you do well. In fact, you do better. That's great. Do that. But she's old enough. She wants to get married. That's fine, too. Let her get married. So 
He says, you as her father can know that you are doing a good thing in honoring her singleness. However, if this idea of the primacy of singleness becomes a kind of legalism, then you are mistreating her because, let's face it, she isn't your little girl anymore, which is kind of what he says here. She's, she's past the flower of youth. He says he does not sin. Let them, that's the daughter and, I guess, her boyfriend, let them marry. Let them marry. Let your daughters get married. That's fine. It's not a big deal. Now, there's another possible situation here that we need to consider. In the Old Testament, there's a law written for young women who make vows. In Numbers chapter 30, the law says that if a young woman living in her father's house makes a vow, her father has the right to veto that vow. He can choose to let the vow stand, in which case it is valid, it is binding, she can't go back on it. Or else the father can say, I know you thought this was a good idea and you did it with the best intentions, but you have to trust me, it's not a good idea. And you made this solemn vow, I'm overruling. It's possible that the actual question that, the, the, that Paul was asked was something like this. There were Corinthian daughters who had made a vow either of singleness or a vow to be married. And the parents aren't really sure how they feel about that. And they know that the final decision comes to them. And, and Paul says, singleness is good. Marriage can be good too. Really, guys, don't overthink this. Verse 38 offers his final word. And it doesn't really sound like a very final word. He says, so then he who gives her in marriage does well. He who does not give her in marriage does better. But it's, but it's really all good is kind of the, the, the subtext there. Now, again, we won't know the full context of what this conversation meant in its original cultural context, but we do know that it fits in the context of this chapter. And the context of the chapter as a whole is very simple and very narrow. Serve the Lord where you are. Serve the Lord in singleness. Serve the Lord as a widow. Serve the Lord in your marriage. Serve the Lord as a parent. And as Paul writes in Philippians, in whatever state you are in, be content. Now, a key phrase in this passage and in this whole chapter, and one that can probably make you relax a little bit more when there's this conversation about whether it's good or not for you to let your kids get married. Verse 35 says, And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. He's saying, I'm, I'm saying this just because I, I don't want you to feel like you're on a leash here. I'm, I'm saying that this is good either way, because I don't want to be overly harsh here and say this is the right way and that's the wrong way. And the Corinthians were already good at dividing along secondary and tertiary doctrinal lines, right? They were good at that. Paul's trying to overcome that and saying, hey, no, no, no. all you guys that think you're really, really great because you're married... And all you guys who think they're really not great because they're married, it's fine. Just get along. It's fine. You're still one church. That's the, the kind of the context of the whole book of Corinthians. In verse 25, let's go back to the beginning of our passage. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord, is in, Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Okay, so they had a question about, uh, about married, marrying off their daughters. <laughs> Conceivably, they had a question about this. Paul says he has no command from the Lord about that, but he is giving his opinion, which we should take seriously knowing that he is writing this opinion under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and this is 
inspired scripture, we take it as seriously as any other word in scripture. Now, last week we mentioned that not all of scripture is of the same quality. We mentioned Job's wife, right? Great memory verse there, curse God and die. Um, like we read that different. We read that verse different than other verses. They're all inspired. They're all true. It's all the word of God, but you got to know how to read. Okay. So Paul here, he is inspired. He is writing this inspired. And he even says at the end, I think I have the spirit of the Lord on this. Um, but instead of giving an inspired commandment that is hard and fast, black and white, what we see Paul do is give an inspired judgment, an inspired opinion that is moderate and balanced and takes wisdom in order to discern and obey. The judgment he gives is determined in part by his observations of the world around him. This is how wisdom works. The conditions, he, he looks around and sees the conditions of the current society in Corinth. He takes all of this into account and then he states his opinion, which is for people to stay single, as a conclusion that he came to because of what he calls this present distress. Now, this could be something specific to the situation in Corinth at this time, or it could be a reference to the state of the world in this age. I tend to think it's the first. I tend to think he's referring to something specific in Corinth. I, I, he's probably talking about a severe persecution that existed at this time for the church in Corinth. And he says, for you guys, in your current living situation, probably shouldn't be thinking to start a family right now. Now, this is what I think, because a few years later, uh, he's going to write to um, Timothy and the, about the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is, is an elder. And he advises Timothy, tell the young widows to remarry. That's what they should do. 1 Timothy 5.14. This was written to a different church in a different country in a different decade. Wisdom looks different at different times in different places. To the Corinthians, he says, okay, single people, it's, it's probably better you, 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 because of the current distress, don't start be starting a family right now. That would be irresponsible. And then to the Ephesians, he's like, yeah, definitely start a family. You need to do that. When we want hard and fast rules, a lot of times the scripture gives principles instead. Um, in fact, there's entire books of the Bible that are categorized as wisdom literature, not command literature. We have that too, but wisdom literature, and they're different. And some requires a little bit more subtlety to discern how to apply it to your life. The Corinthians wanted a command from the Lord. Do we marry or not? What kind of cult is this that I just joined? I need to know fast. Do we, do, we give our, do we give our daughters in marriage or not? Paul looks at the current situation they were in. He gave advice. Now, it would be possible for the Ephesians or any other church to read 1 Corinthians, read someone else's mail. Shouldn't do that, except that's what we do every week in church. Um, and, you know, they, they could look at the letter to Corinth and say, Paul says it's better to stay single. That's, so that's what we should do. And then Paul writes to their pastor, Timothy, and says that was for them. That was for that time. Actually, for you, I'm advising the exact opposite. You should, you should probably, probably just get married. We need wisdom to know the time. There's this little-known verse tucked away in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 12, in the part of the Bible that's all the names that you like to skip, you know, um, that we study on Wednesday and Thursdays, actually. Come to Bible study. Um, we'll start 2 Corinthians this week. 2 Chronicles. Um, 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says that the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. They knew what Israel should do because they knew the cultural context in which Israel lived. What do we do? 
Well, sometimes the scripture is absolutely 100% clear. There are things that are always right to do. There are things that are always wrong to do. More often, though, there is needed an understanding of the situation, an understanding of the times to know what ought to be done. For the Corinthians, there was a present distress, probably a wave of persecution, probably something local. This was before any widespread persecution of Christians under Nero. But Paul had extensive personal knowledge of what it was like to be persecuted for your faith. You read the book of Acts. At this time of the writing, Paul had been beat up more than a few times. He'd been running for his life for years. Does that sound like a stable environment in which to have a family? No, it does not. Now, Paul had two reasons for encouraging some of the Corinthians to stay single. The first is because of the distress, which would make it difficult for anyone to have a family well. And the second is because of the gospel opportunity that he didn't want wasted. The gospel opportunity, which could be hindered by trying to start a family in a war zone. It's interesting to note that the early church had this understanding of this passage, and we know this because of the traditions that developed, for better or for worse, out of this understanding. There are, there are churches, I'm sure you're aware of them, some of them are rather large denominations, where the entire clergy is made up of single men, right? Single men are the pastors, no married men. There's a number of historical reasons for this, not all of them very flattering. But originally, in the first generations of the church, it was common that one who... It was a common understanding that the one who took on the role of pastor would not be pastor for very long because he would be killed. To be a leader in the church was to accept an imminent death sentence. Okay, targets on their back. And during the major Roman persecutions, there were 10 of them, 10 waves of major persecutions under Roman, the, uh, Roman emperors. It was common for the pastor to be arrested and killed. So a tradition, not a doctrine, but a tradition developed. It was uncommon for a church to make a married man its pastor, knowing that his children would soon be orphans. And it became uncommon for pastors to marry, knowing that they were signing up for something they couldn't finish well. It would have been unwise to start a family at this stage with the, something close to a guarantee that you would be leaving your children fatherless. Again, none of that's dogmatic. You need to know the situation, right? You need to know the world in which they live. None of this is doctrine, and Paul says as much. He says, use wisdom. And then he says, with my wisdom, here's how I judge your situation. Verse 27, he says, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Even if you marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. This is the stuff we've been hearing for the last two weeks, right? The Corinthians had the idea that if they changed their situation, then they would be changed or they would be better at, you know, some Christian superpower they were trying to develop or something. Their, their impression was that their relationship status, whatever it was, was a hindrance to their spiritual progress, and that's simply not true. They looked at where the grass appeared greener, and instead of focusing on serving the Lord, they were caught up in these things that they thought were necessary prerequisites for serving the Lord well. So Paul tells them, hey, this, is, this stuff, it's not a sin issue. You just need to, you need to spend less time focusing on whether or not you should get married or stay single and more time on the work that Christ has set before you. He has good works prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Um, the, you know, the, the, the principle that Paul gives for the Corinthians in this time is this. Stay how you are. Serve the Lord where you are. Don't become preoccupied with changing that situation. Just serve the Lord. 
Now, verse 28 shows again that this is not a command of morality, but rather a principle that comes from wisdom. He says, sure, I think it's a good idea to stay single. He says, I wish people would stay even as I also am. But if you want to get married, that's fine. Do it. There's no sin in that. When he says, if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, this reminds us of the question the Corinthians probably asked. Would it be okay for them to marry off their daughters? Paul says, yeah, that's fine. People can get married. It's not a big deal. And then he says, it's, it's going to be hard, though. And I, I, would, I would help you avoid those difficulties. Now, trouble does not equal sin. Would the couple getting married have trouble in the flesh? Yes, absolutely. It would be hard. In addition to the normal difficulties of married life, the Corinthian couples were facing whatever this present distress was that Paul speaks of. So he says, your life is going to be just really hard. It's going to be difficult. You might be able to face persecution, and you, you're confident in that. But when it's your wife who's persecuted, yeah, that's harder. You're going to have a hard time. You're, you're all confident that you're able to serve the Lord well as a single person. Well, you might want to just continue serving the Lord as a single person because when it's your kids on the line, you've got a different kind of decision to make. I would spare you that. But it's, it's not a sin. But here's my wisdom, and I think I have the Holy Spirit talking through me right now. Now, in all this chapter, which is a mix of binding rules earlier on in the chapter, right, and non-binding advice that we see here, Paul is showing himself to be a skilled and compassionate pastor. He says, I would spare you. That's why I'm, do I'm saying this. He's, I'm, he's saying, I care for your souls. It's important to see Paul in this light because Paul, as he imitates Christ, shows us something of the heart of the God who has our best interest in mind. Generally, when we talk about relationships, sexuality, marriage, divorce, all of this, in the context of the scripture, many will feel as, they, as though they are being pitted against a God who really doesn't have their best interest in mind, who doesn't want them to be happy for sure. In fact, the most common lame excuse made when rejecting sound biblical wisdom and commandments in these areas is something along the lines of, God wants me to be happy. Therefore, it's fine. He, no, well, he places limits around sex, strict limits, calling any kind of sex outside marriage either fornication or adultery. You've heard all that, heard the weak arguments against these. Well, God cares about love, and he wants us to be happy. He places severe limits around divorce. Don't do it. And the most common, unfortunately, I don't want to belittle a horrible thing that people go through, but the most common thinking leading into a situation where divorce is a consideration is, I am not happy. But God wants me to be happy, right? And then they just start spiraling around that drain. And then... He places severe limits around remarriage after an illegitimate divorce. But we're quick to excuse these kinds of things and say, it's better that I just do this. He'll forgive me anyway, and after all, he wants me to be happy. Paul writes to the couples considering marriage in a time when it might not be best to do so. This isn't a question of sin, like the stuff he talked about earlier in the chapter, things that I just mentioned, but he still gives his advice with the purpose of helping people avoid trouble. Believe it or not, God does want you to be happy. And he still gives his, he, he, he knows what will make you the most truly, deeply happy in the truest sense for the longest amount of time. In fact, even beyond our concept of time. And it will always be the result of walking in the paths that he has set before you. It'll always be the result of living life according to his design and in submission to his wisdom. When Paul says, I would spare you, you got to imagine some people with their arms crossed thinking, Paul doesn't want me to be happy. And he's saying, I have your best interest in mind. 
Paul saying, I would spare you this is exactly what the Lord says when giving commands that we deem invasive or somehow constraining. Paul only shares his opinion, which is inspired, so take it as a command. Paul only shares his opinion, but God's opinions are perfect. When God says, don't touch that, you can add Paul's words, because I would spare you. Our God is a saving God, and his rules and his laws exist in part to save us from the consequences of the mistaken impulses of our undisciplined hearts. Jesus says his commands are not burdensome. And we can be confident that his commands are for our good and for his glory. And when we see that he does have our good in mind, it's that he would spare us from our own bad decisions. It's, it's that much easier to live our lives unrestrained for the glory of this generous God who has our best interest in mind. And really, that's where Paul is taking this argument in verses 29 through 31. It's all about living this life well for the glory of a good and generous God. Verse 29, he says, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. The time is short. For the form of this world is passing away. This is the underpinning of Paul's ideas about singleness and marriage and really about just about everything else. Is the way you are living today preparing you and the world around you for heaven? Or is the way you are living merely forming more and more attachments to a world system that appears to be in a quickly traveling handbasket that seems to be getting warmer? <laughs> like, you know, like, what, how are you living and Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians, whether single, married, engaged, or whatever, is to live with a wholehearted focus and a wholehearted, a wholehearted focus on the world to come and a wholehearted abandon uh, towards this world at the expense of the world system that is fading away. He, he is encouraging a kind of extreme disregard for the elements of this world that are passing away. When he says, let those who have wives be as though they had none, what he means by this is he says, don't let your relationship status be an excuse for avoiding ministry obligations. Evangelism is needed. The world must hear about Christ. You're married. I'm not. I preach the gospel. You should too. That's what Paul's saying. This is best understood by just reading the next paragraph, actually, and then we'll come back. He says, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, that I may not put a leash on you, but for what is proper that you, whoever you are in whatever state you're in, may serve the Lord without distraction. So Paul is describing a very practical reality. The married person has duties and obligations at home. Every Christian, married or single, has duties and obligations to the Lord, the church, and the world. This difference isn't a bad thing. It's just a thing. Paul's saying, I'd rather some of you stay single. He's saying this in order to save them from trouble, but also to maximize their ability to serve the Lord without distraction. And 
And when he says to the married, live as though you are single, he's not saying pretend like you're not married. Separate bedrooms, please. He's saying serve the Lord wholeheartedly together. And don't use your status here as an excuse not to be somehow involved in this task that we have all been given of preaching the gospel to every living soul. So serve the Lord without distraction, just like you would if you were single. Now, remember, that's what some of them were actually suggesting. They're like, I'm married, but maybe I should stop being married because I can serve the Lord better. And Paul's saying, stay married. Also, serve the Lord better. In verse 30, when he says, those who weep should be as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. He's saying, some of you, you're having a great time living your best life and everything seems to be lining up for you. Well, don't let your success distract you from your work. Don't let your happiness be an excuse to stop working, to stop praying, laboring in prayer, to stop ministering. Some of you are suffering. This is the worst year of your life. Nothing has gone right. If you're married, you wish you weren't. If you were single, you wish you were married. Life is terrible. I don't want your suffering to be an excuse to attach yourself to the false comforts of this world that is fading away. I don't want your mourning to be a distraction from serving the Lord. Your joy and your sorrow both qualify you in different ways to serve the Lord in specific ways. We're so easily distracted, and we're really good at making excuses. In this chapter I said last week, is all about excuses. We suffer and we cut ourselves off from the body. We stop serving, we stop our good habits, and we say, if life were better, I would be better. If life were better, I would be better at being a Christian. And that can be an excuse to attach ourselves to the world. When things are fine, things are great. We're like, I'm glad I prayed when I was in a bad mood, but I don't need to anymore because things are fine. I don't have to pray. I have all that I need. And we are distracted from serving the body of Christ Paul says to both, these circumstances and emotions don't define you. They should not drive you. Live like a Christian wherever you are. Live above these emotions. Do not be ruled by them. He goes on from emotions to possessions, saying those who buy as, they, as though they did not possess and those who use the world as not misusing it. Now remember, all of this leads up to verse 25. 25? No, that's not where it leads up to. Never mind. Whatever verse it says, I'm telling you this that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Right? That's the point. So he lists all the distractions, and man, are they familiar. It's a preoccupation with relationship, or lack thereof. The joys of the world, the sorrows of the world, and the things of the world. He says if he, He's saying if you can buy things, live like those who can't. Live like those who have nothing. Now, he doesn't say don't buy things, because he, he knows it's a heart issue. The love of money and the deceitfulness of riches are problems for rich and poor alike. Paul lists this in the lineup of potential distractions, and we know that we can pursue things and want things and covet things at the expense of greater riches, at the expense of true riches. So he says, live like you didn't have what you have. Instead, acknowledge that all you have is God's. You don't own anything. You're only borrowing. Hold your life your whole life and all you have with an open hand rather than a clenched fist. And then verse 31 really sums it up. He says, those who use this world as not misusing it. Now we all use the things of the world, whether it's money or resources or whatever. We have jobs, we live life, we pay rent, all the things. But to misuse the world is to use the world as if either it is an end in itself or we are. <laughs> Or using the world to show that we are the final end of all our efforts, right? Building a kingdom for self. 
Paul is calling the Corinthians to something higher, something higher than their marriages and their careers and their dreams and pursuits. He is calling them to live this life, this short and momentary life that's like a vapor. Use it well for the sake of the next, the one that lasts, the one that's built on foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He's calling them to live in this world well, with their eyes fixed on the next. And he reminds them that the world, the form of this world, is passing away. Now, Paul wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. He said, time is short. He said, the form of this world is passing away. This is true for every generation of the church. Because of the way time works, we can be confident it's more true for us than anyone else. The writer of Ecclesiastes knew this well. Life is a vapor. He knew also that the form of this world is, inher is inherently unstable. That the world system, the form of this world, is not built to last. That the world system, the form of this world, it's not built to last. Moses knew this. He, he knew that he needed to have his mortality clearly in view when he prayed, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Paul is giving the Corinthians wisdom. And in order to receive this as wisdom, it was essential that the Corinthians understand the scope of his perspective. His eyes aren't on this world. It's on heaven. He's not advising the Corinthians on how to have a good life now, though he is interested in saving them from undue trouble. He's advising them on becoming holy and teaching them to become saints who are thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's the takeaway. You live for heaven. You serve without distraction. Pursue Christ and his kingdom without excuses. He has given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. The things you think are an obstruction to you ministering well aren't. So don't waste what he has given you. Every blessing he has poured out, we can turn back to praise. Let's pray. Jesus, our shepherd and overseer of our souls, we praise you, we thank you. We thank you that you are our, our pastor, our, our leader, the one who would save us from undue trouble, that, that cares about the outcomes of our decisions, that has our best interest in mind. We turn our hearts and our affections, our loyalties over to you, desiring now, Lord, to be led in this truth, to be led in this way towards, towards serving you without distraction and without excuse. As this world is fading away, we pray that we would be untethered from it, that we would have our anchor firmly fixed behind the veil. And we turn our eyes to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, expecting him to preserve his church for our good and his glory. We ask for your blessing, expecting it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent. Alan.
What do you have? No Man's Land 